Well, happy Resurrection Day. We are excited to have you, friends, family, visitors alike. Uh, My name is Justin, and we are so glad that you've come to worship with us this fine Sunday. Real quick, um, if you are a follower of Jesus, whether you're part of Sunnybrook or not, um, in the back you'll see these cups. They're actually stacked together. Um, We do communion all together at once uh, sometime after the sermon. So if you have not yet grabbed one of these, go ahead and do that at this time. That'll save you uh, getting up a little bit later. One of the ways we like to engage you all and ask for you guys to engage with us is through these cards that you see in the pews in front of you. Um, There's a prayer card if you need some prayer. There's a way you can serve if you're interested in jumping in with us, and there's a way you can connect. Uh, You can text the the number on the screen as well. Uh, I may say that every one of the services. We don't text screens because screens are robots. They don't respond back. But we are people... And we will. So my teacher, Jim, helped me with that one. Um, He's going to help us with a lot of things today. Um, We are excited to connect with you. If you do connect, text that, we will reach back out to you. We'd love to hear from you and your story, and we'd love to share with you a little bit about us and what we believe here at Sunnybrook. Um, More importantly than a number on the screen, we get to hear from the very Word of God, and we get to sit under it. And our hope is you don't just engage us through these things that we've already talked about, that ultimately we would be engaged by responding to Jesus with faith. Many of you already have done this, and so let's respond faithfully today by sitting under his word, being encouraged and maybe challenged. And for those who haven't, consider Jesus today. Um, If you would, on this holiest, most important day of the year, as we remember the most important moment in human history, really all of history, I would like for us to stand as we read Matthew 28 and from Hebrews today. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. And from Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you, Justin. It is good for us. Uh, to hear the word spoken over us. And as we like to say on a regular basis, please do not somehow suspend your life 
on the other side of the door. Please don't believe that it would be the more appropriate thing to leave your troubles and your struggles and your difficulties um, and your concerns on the other side of the door. No, this is the place to bring them so that we can come and allow um, the Holy Spirit to allow the Word of God, to allow the presence of God and the presence of His people uh, to begin to minister to us, to challenge us, and to convict us um, so that we might find redemption and hope. And that really is our purpose, and there probably isn't a better Sunday to do it um, than on Easter Sunday, although it's uh, one of the comments that was made to me this morning when we were just getting ready and we were uh, praying as a staff here on the stage at, uh, at 7 o'clock this morning. And then the worship team started singing the songs of worship. And one of the statements I love that somebody else said, and I won't say it is, because Ryan Vincent is just going to go, yeah, that was awesome. But anyway, uh, somebody said, you know, it, it's a sign that we're doing something right when the songs that we sing every Sunday are the songs that we sing Easter Sunday. Wow, I, I, I really did, I love that line. And I just can't help but think that what we're really doing this morning is what we do every Sunday. It's this ongoing, repetitive, but not in, repetitive in the sense like it doesn't have meaning or purpose, but this ongoing reminder, not because we don't know, but because it's healthy to remember just how great God is, how kind God is, how holy and righteous he is, and yet, uh, at the exact same time, this mercy and kindness and forgiveness that we receive. And, and literally, it's, it's such an amazing um, story about who God is, the character and the nature of God, that I understand it, especially when you're reading that story, right? Um, the Marys, I love that line, and the other Mary, okay, uh, almost two out of three girls back in the first century were named Mary. <laughs> so just saying, and the other Mary, which other Mary? There's a lot of Marys. And they go and they're wondering, who's gonna roll away the stone? And the answer is, isn't this, isn't this so God? I've already rolled it away for you. Like it's already ta been taken care of. And then they get to the tomb and they are absolutely shocked and overwhelmed by the fact that he has been raised. And the story, truly, is, is just so, not what they expected. It is so amazing. And then when you find out the meaning behind the story, the reason why Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead is because God's pursuit of his people who have rebelled against him is so great that he pursued them and he forgave them from their, from their sin. And now they have peace with him, even though they don't deserve it. And even though they did nothing to, to warrant it, so we had no ability to put God in our back pocket and he was just always loving and kind and gracious and holy and righteous. That's the way God is. And it's understandable for us to say, eh, sounds a little too good to be true. And I promise you, I understand the fact that you might be sitting here this morning and you're not trying to be a skeptic. You just almost expect that story to begin, not on the first day of the week, but once upon a time. And I guess it gets a little more complicated when we begin by celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can dwell in eternity in this wonderful place where there is no more crying or sin or death. And then in the afternoon, we hide Easter eggs and pretend the Easter bunny left them. Same thing? Not at all. 
So it's understandable that we might say, from the time in which we live and the place in which we live, which is just built in um, a high degree of skepticism, eh, it just sounds too good to be true. I had this one professor back in college and he talked about how religion, in fact all religions, I'm not trying to attack Christianity, how all religions are basically like a psychological or a sociological construct so that we can deal with the difficulties of life. That in the end we can somehow all feel a little bit better knowing that I know this life is really, really hard, but in the end, don't worry, it'll all work out. And we're all trying to make meaning and understand meaning in this life. And so there are just, every, every group of people do it. They try to create a narrative that just makes them feel better. That's the explanation. I get it. This is, this is such an amazing story. I just have a hard time believing it's true. Have you tried shopping for a car lately? I guess it's hard. And so you type in the specs that you want and you even kind of broaden the parameters and you have to raise the price. And as you're scanning through it, it'll say right down beside it on, on the apps that I looked at, it says right beside it, good price, good price. I'm not looking for a good price. I'm looking for a great price. And then I found it, great price. And the mileage is way less than what I thought it was gonna be. Wait a second, that car, that year, that make, for that price, what, what, do you, what, what are you thinking? Too good to be true? Yeah, too good to be true. Something's wrong with it. Here's how well, how well we've all been conditioned. If, if really, if, if it's, there's that much disparity, then what? It was probably in a wreck. It was probably in an accident, right? That's what's going on here. And they, they kind of covered it up, but in the end, I mean, you get what you pay for, and that price, yeah, too good to be true. And then you walk in Easter Sunday, and I tell you the most amazing story, and it just sounds too good to be true. You raised her well. You did the best that you and your spouse could do, and you send her away to college. And, and then you probably even remember the phone call where she said, I think I found the one. We're going to have to meet this young man. We, we, we want to help you, and all she can list are all of his amazing qualities. Truly, I can't think of anything that he's ever done ever that is bad. And you're thinking, we thought we raised her better than this. She is so naive. She's not seasoned like we are, honey. I think we just, we need to give the guy a, a break, and then we'll kick him out and make sure they never talk again. <laughs> you're not just trying to be protective, and you're not just salty. Or angry. You know people. You've met enough of them, and you are one. And so, in the end, it's just too, yeah, he sounds too good to be true. <laughs> Is his mom's name Mary, right? I mean, it just doesn't match, it just doesn't fit. And, and so, sweetheart, here's all I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to just pump the brakes. I'm just asking you to kind of slow down. I'm just asking you to break up with him and burn your phone. That's all I'm asking, okay? That's all I'm asking. And truly, you're really struggling with that. Um, you probably wouldn't sell the car for that price, and you would have to divulge the fact that it was in a, an incident. <laughs> Rhymes with accident. And even when you try to present yourself to others... Right? 
Whether you're doing it on Facebook or you're doing it over coffee, you don't begin with the deepest, darkest problems that you've had, do you? I don't want you to know that. And so I'm going to give you a list of things, of complicated things, in which I feel like I've been honest-ish or enough. And we all do it. And so all of us are constantly um, listening to and doubting and being really, really skeptical. And then we come in Easter morning. Can I tell you the most amazing story ever? Sure. And it's even hard for us to say. I would even argue that there's a lot of Christian people who've been, who even believe this. And yet when, when, when you hear it, you just go, wow, like it just, is it really true? It just sounds so good to be true. Like if you think there is an offer, think about what God offers us and think about what we have to pay and think about what we get. If there ever was a that sounds too good to be true moment, it's here. And what I love about the Bible is the, the fact that it has no problem being honest about the struggle that even the best of us has to believe it. I found four statements, one in each gospel, I've tried to put them in order, in which it reveals that even those closest to Jesus, when they dealt with what happened on Easter, that first Easter Sunday, and then the subsequent ones, when they dealt with the reality this new reality that Jesus Christ, who died, has now been raised from the dead. They didn't go, called it, totally saw that one coming. Nope. Here's what Mark says. Mark chapter 16, verse 8. You can look at these now or you can look at them later. Mark 16, 8, which I actually believe is the ending of Mark's gospel. I know you might look at it in your Bible and it says verses 9 through 20, but it's got a little kind of a kind of thing in brackets there. We can talk about it later. I think Mark ends there at verse 8, and this is the reason why people have always struggled with this ending, and I believe even the reason why people have tried to add an ending to it that lines up more with what Matthew says is because they couldn't believe that Mark would end it here. All the textual evidence seems to say that he did. Final words from Mark's gospel. They went out and they ran away from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. How do you end with that? Just fear? Actually, that's the way that everybody responded when God was too big for them. When anybody appeared before God and God saw them, their automatic response to his presence is one of fear, and and that is why God then speaks words of peace. Do not fear. But the first response is one of fear. Do not fear. And these women do what anybody would do when they are overwhelmed by the presence of God. Trembling and astonished, they run away and they were afraid. But that's not the end of the story because it appears as you read all the gospel accounts together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus reappears to them and says, go and tell the brothers. And they're strengthened. And so they do. And they go and they find the brothers. They go to the disciples and they say to them, we have seen the Lord. And the disciples did not say, called it. These are people who've been with Jesus for three years. These are people who heard repeatedly. Jesus say to them, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, and this is how it's going to end. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to sinful men. I'm going to be tortured. I will then die, be crucified, and then I will rise on the third day. Pretty clear, right? 
Pretty clear? And the disciples consistently went, after Jesus said that, repeatedly, I have no idea what he's talking about. The story was so far outside of anything that they could imagine that their only way to deal with it was, I don't get it. I don't get it. Luke chapter 24, verse 11, the women, after a second appearance with Jesus, come to their better senses. Not their first response, but their ongoing response. And they tell them, we've seen the Lord. And then Luke records, these words seem like nonsense to them. Are you kidding me? The gospel as nonsense? Yep. Who? Peter, James, John, Matthew, Bartholomew, Tom, right? You know the list? The ones who'd been with Jesus? That's nonsense. And they did not believe the women. But God persists. And Jesus appears to them again. John chapter 20, verse 25. And again, I learned this morning talking to someone, or sorry, this week talking to someone. Uh, and they said to me, you know, it's interesting. You always have a, a phrase for, for Thomas. You call him Doubting Thomas. In my culture, that's not our name for him. And I thought, oh, lucky for him. <laughs> right? I still think that their disciples are going to be, seriously, what did you call me? I, I hate for the last words or the worst words that I've said to be the ones that I'm remembered by. Thomas, by the way, is the one who earlier in this narrative, um, right near the end, they, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and Thomas is the one who says, let us go with him so that we can die with him. Right? He's like you and me. It's this, this, this uh, incredibly close connection between faith and doubt, between really great bold statements, and then wondering if you heard it right, wondering if you saw it right, wondering if you're responding right. John 20, 20, 25. Thomas speaking. If I don't see the marks of the nails in his hand and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's nonsense to the end. I will never believe. And what does Jesus do? He goes to him, meets him where he's at. Put your, hand, put your fingers, put your hand. Like I'm here. Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. And the last one, which is interesting, again, I tried to put these in chronological order. This one is Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. This is the Great Commission. This is after Jesus has stayed with the disciples a long time. Like, all of the confusion, all of the misunderstandings should be worked out by now, right? I've been a follower of Jesus Christ, me speaking. I've been a follower of Jesus Christ for a really, really long time. Like, it's worked out now, right? Like, all of the questions, like, they're worked out. It's when, I, when I share my faith with others, and I say, so what questions do you have? And they're almost nervous to say a question. And I said, listen, I just, I've been doing this a long time. Like, literally. Like, I have been walking with Christ a long time. I really don't know if you can say anything that I haven't either heard or wrestled with myself. Like, I get it. We're all in this journey. Here are the disciples. This is right before Jesus go into all the world, baptizing them. And he, This is before that great statement. Here's what Matthew records in verse 17. And when they saw him, he's about to ascend to the Father. When they saw him, they worshiped. But some doubted. They don't yet have the presence of the Holy Spirit, which has not come on them in power. They're, this might be you this morning. They're trying to believe. 
And I don't mean they're being fake. I don't mean they're being artificial. And we should never be involved. One of our prayers that we have as a staff is that we will never try to manufacture or to manipulate like good works so that we could feel better about ourselves, but a growing dependence upon the Holy Spirit and the work that the Spirit is going to do. So I'm not asking you to, to try to, to muster within yourself and to try to create faith. That's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm saying that I believe that the more that we take to the Lord and the more that we wrestle with the Lord, we can do so recognizing that we are not the only ones to hear an amazing story and to wonder. And that wondering, if you think of the word wonder, it can mean, huh, I wonder. And then, oh, look at the wonder. And there's a reason why those two words describe the same thing but different. And do you wonder at the goodness and the greatness of God and what he's accomplished us for us through Jesus Christ? I think what gets in the way for all of us is the painful truth, and we know it to be true, the painful truth about sin and brokenness, about rebellion and pride and guilt and shame, I don't know if you first think of others or your own, but that's a long list. And if there's anything that I know to be real and true, it's that. I'm very, very aware of my own brokenness, and I'm probably more aware of the brokenness of others. You just can't help but read the news or just be walking through life and dealing with other humans and not just kind of get a sense there is just a lot of hurt and brokenness that exists. And it does two things at the same time. It wears you down and causes you to to build like barriers up. As you are being worn down, you, you build up barriers towards others. Some of those barriers caused by them. Yeah, I need distance. Some of those barriers caused by you. I just feel so bad for what I've done. And I know you said that we can work through this. It's just easier for me to create distance. That way I'm not reminded all the time of what I've done. Isn't that interesting? You see this in the garden. Genesis chapter three, early in the story. Adam and Eve sin, and God's automatic response to their sin and to their fleeing, for them trying to create separation or distance, to deal with their shame. And God pursues them. Where are you? That that question is not, I've lost you. It literally, it means, you're not where I put you. Like you're not where you're supposed to be, is what the word means. Isn't it interesting? We had to flee because we were naked. God says, well, I hope you're happy. You know, everything you get from here on out, you deserve. What does he say? Who told you you were naked? Who have you been listening to? Who told you you were naked? I was thinking about that narrative and I thought to myself, they were always naked. It's not like they went, what happened? We forgot to get dressed. They were always naked. 
But something happened. Some, something happened to their eyes. Something made them aware. And, and that's why there is just something that is both metaphorically true, and I believe true, about this story where they're describing um, because of sin and brokenness and rebellion and pride and guilt and shame, a new level of, of uh, frailty, a new level of vulnerability. I was naked. We were naked. And we were ashamed. And so we hid. And it's so interesting that God then, like, takes an animal, kills it to cover them. Which, by the way, they're still naked on the inside. I mean, they're, they're still broken, but God in his grace covers them. Which is what I love about the Bible, um, and that's why you will hear us say on a, repeatedly, on a repeated basis, please do not believe that the Bible consists of two parts, angry God, part one, loving God, part two. Holy, righteous God, part one, holy and righteous, but greater, better sense of humor, part two. God of the Old Testament, God through Jesus in the New Testament. So, it is such an anemic way to look at the Bible. For the God so loved the world that he sent his son. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And God covers them. And, and this becomes then the system. So what we actually see with God is he is increasingly giving covenants of grace, contracts of grace. God is constantly saying to people who are broken, but I will not give up on you. You've been unfaithful, but that's not who I am. You're unfaithful, I'm faithful. You're rebellious, I'm not. You're proud and arrogant in your humanity, and, and I don't have that. My, my arrogance is not beyond my ability. You are the one full of guilt and shame, and I'm not. And this is what I love about the God of the Bible. Because he's none of those things, he stays in relationship with his broken creation. And by the way, if you look at the name tag, it's got your name on it that he stays in relationship with. That's you, that's me. And God is so complete in himself that he doesn't run. He doesn't have to create space or separation but God, not just dares, but God in his love and in his kindness and the fullness of himself, he draws near to us. And he stays in covenant relationship. And he, by the way, he does this in the beginning. And God, in this increasing revelation of his love and his mercy and his righteousness and his holiness, don't separate those, says, I'm going nowhere. And I will continue to pursue you. One of my, one of my favorite uh, discoveries was in, in Psalm 23, when he's talking about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He does all these things. And his loving kindness will, will follow me all the days of my life is kind of a, a famous translation, right, that we all know. And he'll follow me all the days. It's actually not follow. The Hebrew word there is he will pursue me. He's not tagging along. He is in pursuit of. All the days of my life. Yeah, but does he know who I am? Uh-huh. Everything that I am? Yep. And he is so full 
in himself, he's free to love and free to forgive. And so these covenants that God made through Adam and through Noah and through Abram and through Moses and through David are this reminder of God saying, I'm going nowhere. I'm pursuing you. Have hope. And they did this by sacrifices. They, they did this with this constant reminder. I know none of us like to be reminded of our sin. One of my biggest frustrations is when Andrew and I have a conversation and then she reminds me of something that I did. One of the things she hates is when I remind her of something that she did. Can't let that go, can you? And as humans, it's just hard to let it go. You know, part of that is actually being human. God wanted this, and so there were these sacrifices that were offered time and time and time and time and time again. That's how Hebrews 9 begins. Hebrews 9 really is our text. What Justin read is the conclusion. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 through 22, and I want you to see the kindness of God. I want you to see the goodness of God, but it's a shadow. It's not in, its, it's not in his fullness. Just because the story of God's love and God's kindness continues on, what I love about the Bible as well is it gets, it gets increasingly wonderful. Beginning in verse 18, speaking of the covenant through Moses to the children of Israel, the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to tell the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll itself, and then he sprinkled all the people, saying... Tell me if you've heard this before. This is the blood of the covenant. That's what Jesus says. This is Moses. This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. Not just to remind you of your sin, but to remind you of your sin that the Lord is passing over. And in the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I think it's just hard for us to fathom in the modern world in which we live. And it wasn't every time there was a sin. It's not like you went and did something bad and then you had to sacrifice a goat and then the next day you did something bad and you're like, I really gotta stop sinning because these goats are running out. That's not the way it worked. It wasn't for every sin. But it was built into the life of the community that they would be constantly reminded of their sin and God's grace. By the way, we, we really don't gain anything when we try to pretend there's no sin in the world. Then there's no appeal for justice. There's no appeal for the stopping of injustice. I, I think it's good if sin is spoken about and then rightly understood. The gravity and the pain. I'm truly the sin that we don't want to talk about, it's our own. We have no problem talking about other people's. If you could just please forget mine. By the way, can I just remind you of yours? But in the Bible, bring the sacrifice, and they would do this. They would bring the sacrifice, and that blood would atone, kind of. Actually, it wouldn't. The Hebrew writer actually says that the blood of bulls and goats didn't do anything. Except it reminded them that they needed God's grace. Every time someone brought the blood of a bull or a goat or a, a ram or a pigeon or something and they gave it to the Lord. 
God had to take that thing, which was not them, as a substitute for them. And I can't help but believe that every time that they would do that, there was this growing sense of, this just doesn't seem right. And I know what you're thinking. Those poor little animals. Now, this is before that was like a way to think. It just doesn't seem right. How does God take that for what I did? That's why I love the fact that the Bible, from the very beginning, talks about God's grace and his kindness and his mercy over and over and over again. I think one of the reasons why we just need to stop talking about sin is because we don't really want to deal with the wonderful news of how God provides redemption. I think most of us are more comfortable with doing things to make it better. We're, we're more comfortable with the fact that I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I, I think I've got this covered. I, I feel better with that. Because that amazing story about like what God did and then just by grace, it just seems too good to be true. And so that's why a lot of Christian people feel like they can somehow, I don't know if they think substitute, but just add to what Jesus Christ did. After all, you're a good person. And by the way, if you don't believe that about yourself, you definitely believe that about your mom. You just can't believe. You just can't believe that God wouldn't accept her. She is so sweet and fun. Hmm. And so there is this reminder of sin so that we can be reminded of what is greater, which is grace. God's kindness and his mercy. And the fact that that last line from Hebrews 10, and there is no forgiveness, or there is no, there is, there is no more sin because there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. And that is why as real as sin and rebellion and brokenness and guilt and shame exists. The Bible speaks, this is such an understatement, exponentially more, exponentially more about repentance and confession, both of God's greatness and of my own sin, and redemption and forgiveness and restoration and hope. That's the focus of the Bible. If what you read is just this constant rehashing of sin, you're not looking at it right. You're not understanding it. Because the Bible is focused on the greatness of God, not the, not the, not the brokenness of humanity. It's focused on what God has done and what God has accomplished. That is the primary focus and celebration of Scripture is that in spite of all that we have done, God is greater still. In spite of the fact that we have been unfaithful, God is faithful. The fact that we have walked away, God has pursued. And the fact that you and I have just brought him brokenness, God has healed it and made it right. I was preaching, this is a common theme that we do here on Sundays, right? And I was preaching this a few weeks ago, and um, somebody came up to me, and they, were reminding, they reminded me of a great word that actually came from a, a famous preacher years ago, that he said this, we bring nothing, nothing to God but our sin. Isn't that interesting? We bring nothing to him. Uh, by the way, I, I think some of you wrestle with that, because it just makes me sound so terrible. Well, 
that's just because you are. I'm serious. We are. And that, 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 um, that angst that you feel right now, I feel it too. It's just one more game you and I play. To not have to come to grips with the fact that the kindness that God has shown us in Jesus is all because of him. It's all because of him. David understood this. In Psalm 51, after David committed adultery and then murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, he writes a psalm, and in that psalm he writes, if I, this is just my interpretation, if I could offer you a sacrifice, I would. If there was some sacrifice that I could offer you that would somehow make this okay, he somehow looked at the lamb and the goat and he realized this isn't going to cut it. And then he says this, the offering that you will take or the sacrifice that you will take is a contrite and a broken spirit. A contrite and a broken spirit you will not reject. And that's true. But, but I, I, I'm not arguing with scripture. But can I just tell you what David is not saying is, is that that's all that you need. I believe a broken and a contrite spirit then puts us, puts us in the right position so that we can receive God's grace. I think that broken and contrite spirit is a healthy understanding of the greatness of God and the brokenness of you. But without a savior, I'm really concerned, and it's not a recent problem, by the way. I think there are generations past and generations in existence today who are trying to ride into heaven a wave of contrition and brokenness without a savior. We have somehow learned, this is how deceptive we can be to ourselves. I don't need a snake to lie to me. I can do this now on my own, thank you very much. That I can find my redemption. Anybody else know what it's like to feel good about feeling bad? To feeling good about saying my bad? To feeling good about admitting I'm more messed up than any of you. And that is my redemption. A contrite and a broken spirit. Without a savior, it's nothing. It's nothing. We need Jesus. And he has been provided for us. And it is this broken and contrite spirit, weirdly enough, that draws me into the goodness of God. That draws me into grace. And as much as I'm pushing people away because I hate to be reminded of my guilt, this is what we do. It's so interesting. What's the opposite of guilt? Well, that's easy. Innocence, sure. But what's the flip side of guilt? Gratitude. The more that I'm studying for some work I'm doing right now, the more that I'm just amazed at how, how guilt and gratitude have like a shared root. When my wife puts up with me and I'm really overwhelmed by just, I don't know why she does it. Like I can give you five reasons why she does it, but then that sixth one just kind of undoes the thought, right? I just don't know why she does it. What is, what is that that you're feeling? Do you have, have this in any relationship, maybe with God? Who knows the truth about you and it's almost easier for you to create distance than to deal with embrace? Just the guilt is so strong. 
You know what it feels like when you stay in those broken relationships? It feels like gratitude. And we hate that kind of gratefulness. We don't mind the kind of grateful, hey, thanks for the coffee. Sure glad that week is done, amen? Put one of the Aspens out of business, but that's fine, right? But the kind of um, gratitude that still remembers our brokenness is not reminded of it, but is still aware of it. I think there's a deep connection between guilt and gratitude. And that's what it means to remember God's plan and purpose of covenantal grace. If what God does with sacrifices is reminds us and brings us hope, then what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ is the perfect reminder of God's covenantal grace that brings us eternal hope. It is the, it is the end of it. It really is. It becomes the final statement that God made in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves purified with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ did not enter the sanctuary made with hands, but a model of the true one, into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as a high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifices himself. And just as it appointed for the people once to die and after this judgment, it's why your decision this morning on how you respond to the gospel matters. For it is destined everyone once to live, then to die, then judgment. So you just believing, ah, too good to be true, is an eternal decision. You believing, too good to be true, ah, is an eternal decision. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. I love that line. He doesn't come to bring judgment. He actually comes to bring salvation for us. Are you worried about meeting God? So aware of the painful reality of sin and brokenness and everything that you've done wrong? I'm not. Not at all. Because I know in the one that I believed in, and I know that my sins are forgiven, and I know that my sin is great, but I know that God's grace is greater, and you want to know how I know? Because when Mary, and then one of the other Marys, went to the tomb, it was rolled away, the stone was, and they said, he is risen. Which means everything that he said is true, which is that I have come so that you might have life and have it abundantly. I forgive you. And that which I want to keep at arm's length because of guilt has been turned into not the erasing of a memory, but gratitude. When we go to heaven, do you think you'll remember all the terrible things that you've done? I do. What? Okay, thanks, Jim. You've just ruined heaven now. No, I haven't ruined it at all. You don't think we'll know about these things? You think Uriah's in heaven going, I don't know how I got here. I don't remember, imagine how much of your life 
would just be erased. There's a very well-known scholar who believes that eternity is the erasal of memory. He's smarter than me, but he's wrong. And you know how I know? There'd be no purpose to glorify Jesus Christ. This is the amazing thing of Easter. Don't you understand? When I go to heaven, nothing has been erased. It is still real. But God's grace is exponentially more. And his presence and his promise of his presence makes everything okay. The idea of removing memory is another way of not dealing with reality. Can you imagine going to Jesus and saying, hey, what happened to your hands? Well, sin, what's that? All the bad things that you did. Did you do any bad things? No, I didn't do any bad things. Those same hands that died, that took those nails for us. You and I will know exactly why. And yet the fact that he holds us is proof that he loves us. Isn't that amazing? Too good to be true? I want us to just think for a moment. What have you done with the reality of Jesus? What have you done? Before we eat, can I just ask you to think for a moment? As you wonder at the wonder of God, what have you done? Are you holding him at arm's length? Are you still trying to create a a certain degree of separation because you have not learned how to turn guilt into grateful? By the way, that's the power of the Spirit. Just giving you a moment to just think about the goodness of God and his love for us in Jesus and to believe. Believe.